Product Management. All right. Hello, everybody. This is another episode of the Real World Product Management, and I have Ksenia Kalashnikov uh, on the line today. I think Irina will join later if she can. Uh, she has other arrangements at the moment. So, Ksenia, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about who you are, what you're working on, what is your role? Okay, sure. Um, I'm I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to say hi everybody, but hi everybody. Um, uh, currently, I'm working in EPAM as senior business intelligence analyst. That actually implies that I'm working with both business departments and the architects who are building the solution for the enterprise. So it's more um, on the edge of business and technical perspectives. And um, that would be nice to share some experience in how that is actually working for businesses and um, technicians and people who are interested in both of those. And um, that's why we have you online today. <laughs> yep, well, uh, kind of. So, uh, so I, I love the words business intelligence. I, I Actually, I like intelligence as a whole and uh, business intelligence specifically. So, talk to me about the data. Uh, why is it important to have uh, business intelligence? Why is it important to have data collected and processed? And, and uh, we, we know it's kind of expensive. It gets expensive uh, over time. So why should businesses invest in that? So first of all, I, I feel the urge to mention that business intelligence is not a tool and it's not a thing. It's more of a set of approaches, technologies, architectures, um, whatever it takes just to get the data. So when we say that we need business intelligence, that's just like a very, very beginning of the very long road. That means that we are just getting started. And um it's, I'm saying that not to just scare away. It's just to say that there are a lot of ways how to do that. So basically, when companies are introducing business intelligence, they um, think that it is something extremely huge, very complicated, very expensive, and probably we don't need that. Why overcomplicate stuff? What the heck? But the key thing is that business intelligence actually gives you more insights out of the data which you either already have or just planning to ever gather. You can pick just a few very starting uh, small approaches and small techniques, and they will already give you much more insights and ideas about what to do and what to start with. So I'd say that business intelligence is great to start with um, because it helps you both work with the data that you have, gather more data, even out of the sorry places you've never thought you're going to get data, and also uh, because it can help you build out the bright future for both your company and uh, the environment that you're working in. So kind of works for it after all even being this complicated as it sounds i like i like the bright future reference thank you <laughs> <laughs> we all need I, um, bright future references at this time <laughs> oh yes definitely yes indeed um so question um we kind of know and I'm, I'm with you on this one as much as i like to disagree with my guests uh one of the things that i noticed since we're talking about a company's building bright future and, and all that. Uh, what usually happens uh, in at companies, and I've been, uh, I don't want to say I've been a victim of that, but I have been. Companies want to use 
advanced analytics, uh, BI, uh, maybe even machine learning, artificial intelligence on the data that they have or they are able to collect. They uh, assess the costs or they assess the expenditures, the resources that they need to process the data. They think it's expensive, They and it is, uh, just hiring data engineer uh, or data scientist and uh, somebody who can uh, collect, process, and understand the data. They look at all of this and they say, you know what, that's too expensive. I uh, We can't afford this now. We'll probably do this, you know, Q3 next year, which is basically never. And um, they never do it. And they obviously, they're leaving money on the table. So what is your, given your background, what would be your kind of idea, recommendation, approach to how should companies really approach this? Since since we both understand that we want, both want uh, to build that bright future um, for all of us, how would you approach that that problem? Well, referring to the thing that you said in the very, very beginning, I'm not sure whether it's the right expression to use right here, but it's like a lot of the companies approach business intelligence and advanced analytics, as you've mentioned them, is like, uh, you know, they're trying to cook a hare before they actually catch him. They just enter the market of business intelligence, they see um, how cool it is and um, what a great experience other companies had with working with advanced analytics. And they're like, yay, let's do that. But the key thing is that advanced analytics is going to work out the way it's supposed to only when you have like the data infrastructure already prepared. And you cannot jump into that just clicking your fingers. You should prepare first of all. And in a lot of cases, this preparation takes way more effort, um, much more money than expected, and uh, it's way more complicated. But the key thing, if you do that right, advanced analytics is just going to smoothly slide in. So I'd say that to start uh, implementing that in your company and just to go uh, data-driven if you are planning to. At first, you have to fix up the mess that you already have right now in your company and fix that at first before you start talking about business intelligence, advanced analytics, machine learning, and all this kind of stuff. I, I've I've had a few projects uh, kind of even before they became products. Uh, I've had a few of those kind of shut down because uh, of because of this, oh, it's too expensive rationale. Um, my personal take on this is, uh, yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's uh, complicated. Yes, you need to clean up the mess, but you have to start somewhere. You have to start at some point in, in present and keep pushing towards the future. And kind of way I... The way I see this was that, hey, we don't have to buy the whole machine learning thing from day one. Uh, we don't have to invest in, in full-blown artificial intelligence approach from day one. Uh, what we need to do is we need to understand what we have today and see how we can use it. Uh, we need to move on slowly to regular, just look at the statistics, look at the regular analytics, move on to advanced analytics, move on to BI, and then eventually we'll get to the machine learning because by that time we'll be prepared, we'll be ready to have the data, we'll understand the data gaps. So you know, data that we're not collecting today, but we will be collecting based on what we see in stats and analytics uh, down the road. So that was kind of uh, kind of the approach I was thinking. Uh, unfortunately, didn't take. <laughs> so, uh, but that uh, that didn't work out uh, in the last last place I tried it. I think we understand um, that data uh, driven approach is important 
So is it just a buzzword, a trend, or is it the real deal? Talk to me about that. Uh, well, I just wanted to make a small comment regarding the project that you just mentioned when it did not kick off. Um, as much as I hate to admit that, and I hate to say that even out loud, I hope people are not going to hate me for that. But um, um, a lot of the companies are working pretty much fine using just Excel files and like simple reporting tools, not something very complicated, um, even without, you know, and they are able to perform the analysis they need and gather all the information that can help them out. So the key thing is that, yeah, you're absolutely right that um, we have to start with a small steps and the small steps can be as simple as, as it is, just make clear business rules in your actual Excel spreadsheets, um, make um, obvious restrictions onto the reporting dashboards that you're using, and that would be your first step to seeing the gaps, then to introducing new approaches, then to applying more complicated, more advanced analysis onto that, and then moving further to where you would want to. So totally agreed on your point that simple steps are just okay here. Yeah, and just just one note, one note on what you're saying. I, it's not that I don't like Excel. I love Excel. It's just that after in my career, after seeing two gigabyte files that run whole hedge funds, I would say uh, find something something better than Excel. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> don't abuse the thing. Um, and one of the most recent projects I've been involved in, there was um, a very complicated constructional work done when um, the company has been trying different combinations of various equipment. And uh, there were more than 100 combinations within one stack. And it all was handled in the Excel file. So when I saw that file, I was like, really? Do you do you really use this? Is that okay for you so i'm not judging them it's just the you know the depth of perception so maybe there's something better for you to do that kind of maybe yep 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 i mean i've seen uh, i've seen people using uh, microsoft access and that's kind of the whole the whole story about rogue it uh people who can't get things done mm-hmm. by their own it department so they start learning microsoft well they already have Microsoft Office, they already know Excel. Uh, they maybe learn Microsoft Access because it's slightly better in its actual database, even though it's you know reduced um, significantly from SQL, but still it's a database. And that's how you get the whole departments running on rogue databases because uh, yeah, things things are not uh, things are not there. So back to the original question so data driven approach is is a thing we want to use it as much as we can regardless of whether it's um a simple excel file if it's uh, something more complicated or if it's an, an advanced analytics suite we still we still want to use it for what what are we what are we going to do with the data how are we going to how are we going to use that data I mean, do you have any examples of using the collected data for real-world usage? I don't know, building products, um, changing products, anything of that sort? 
Um, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I would say that your question is still connected to the um, story about the raw data and people trying to use access themselves. Um, but the key thing is that in the majority of cases, people are doing that out of despair because they, as you said, they cannot reach out to IT specialists and they have to solve the problem themselves. So they just invent new ways. But the key thing is that business intelligence kind of gives you the information. It makes it more democratic sort of thing for you. So you don't have to invent your new wheel. You just use the already simplified and uh, comprehensive information for you. Um, once we're going data-driven and we are willing to do that through the BI, um, I would say that um, in a lot of ways, it would make a lot of sense to just have the hypothesis and, you know, like the first statement we're starting with. But in a lot of cases, people do not have that on the project. Um, just to give an example, uh, prior to working in EPAM, I've been involved in the banking products and uh, we've been implementing a new uh, functionality, which actually was not articulated properly. It was just aimed to do the job better. So just do better. Give us your best shot sort of thing. Um, it is like a classic example of not articulated um, uh, task which has to be solved and um, there's no particular request, but we have to deal with that and come up with some adjustment based on the data. Data is like the first thing we can use to actually do that first step. So um, we were working with a user-friendly um, user user-friendly application, as we thought, and we were testing it, trying to make it uh, better and more um, uh, more mobile, more easy to understand for whoever is going to use that. And also there was the increasing number of information people were uploading into their application. So we had to handle that as well. So I'd say that given that we were not given a specific goal or specific restrictions on how to use the data we were given, um, we just started collecting the data which was most to the eye. So the most logical thing would be just to gather everything, you know, like get all the data you can get. But we were more aimed into getting the information which is more obvious. So let's say for us, it was uh, the quantity of transactions people were doing in uh, various periods of the month. So obviously, when you have to pay bills for your apartment, that's like one date in a month. When you have salaries, that's another important date in a month and so on and so forth. So we were gathering anal um, analytical information data from this specific dates. We were trying to get um, how many people are online, um, what steps they're taking to get to this information, what kind of transactions they're doing, um, are they getting any bills, do they print out some information, uh, do they probably do some manipulations inside of their accounts, etc., etc. So so as a first step, it would be good to actually have uh, the goal and the purpose articulated from the business department. But as long as we did not have any, we just went with the most obvious thing that we thought was is just to get the information which was mostly used and on the surface. So I would say that if you're like in the middle of a huge ocean and you don't know where to swim in the land of data. Uh, this is the first thing that you can do. Just grab the information which is on the surface and makes more sense to you than anything else. That can be a good start. Okay. Okay. So 
please, please go on. Uh, so what uh, what happens then next? You take the data, you apply it, you make changes. How do you assess whether you were successful or not? I'd say that we're actually missing one more step before we're assessing whether we um, succeeded or failed. I would say how we're applying this information. So it's not enough to just gather information, you know, like, okay, 100 of uh, people were using the application at 3 p.m. yesterday. Like, perfect. So what? Like, how am I going to use this kind of information? Right. What, is it, what does it tell us exactly? Yeah, like, what is it about? What can I do to that? So basically, once we gather this most obvious, as we are going to call it for now, information, we have to do something to it. Um, in current situation, in the data-driven approaches and in the uh, BI trends particularly, a lot of analytical thinking and uh, understanding is still done by the humans. We're going to get to that, but let's assume that it's still human's job and um, using the information that we've already gathered we have to at first understand um, where it can be used so let's say i have the number of people who were using my application yesterday how can i use it like to where obviously i cannot use that to the currency rates because it makes no sense but i can use that to uh, see how stable my application was so what what um, what was going to happen that if the uh, 201st person is going to enter the application and everything's going to crash? So this is my point where I can use this number. So once we gather the information, we have to um, think through and in a lot of ways from the business perspective, the part where this information can be used and in the future applied to make some conclusions and build up some models even on the hypothesis level. So um, let's call it this way. Um, so as you said that we need to implement that, like optimize it somehow to later figure out whether it's a success or failure. So um, let's say that we figured out that, okay, that the 201st person to enter the application is gonna crash it. Perfect, this is a valid information, we can use it, so let's use it. How we can use that? So according to this, like the most obvious thing we're going to do is just uh, work with our technical support part and uh, make the application more stable so we can handle this, uh, this number of people using it. Maybe we can increase it even more if we know that the functionality is going to be expanding or becoming uh, more popular and this sort of thing. Um, also, we can come up with alternative ways how people can enter the application. So let's say a lot of people are using the four-digit numbers um, combinations to enter uh, the application, like kind of a code lock. So what if we're going to introduce the um, uh, fingerprint scan? That's going to increase the uh, speed of logging in and that would just reload the system a little bit because it's an alternative way how to do that. So once we've found out the ways where we can use and apply information we gathered, we can actually come up with the solutions, how this information can help us and um, what can be increased because we're basically working with uh, how to make things better. Um, after we've implemented this kind of things, um, simple, simple old-fashioned testing. So you always have to test that on people. It can be you, yourself, like in the first party, the development team. They might be a little bit subjective, but anyway, 
it's good to test with them in the first place. Then the beta testing, the alpha testing, all this kind of stuff that we know. So this is the optimization and implementation part that you've been mentioning. And only after that, we can actually figure out that, okay, so the, uh, the application did not crash and people are satisfied with the alternative way of logging in into application because, well, aside from statistical ways, there's always the satisfaction factor which we cannot um, ignore in no matter what our business is connected to. So if we say that, okay, so this kind of information helped us to improve our application, people are happy, statistics are happy, system is okay, then we can consider that to be a success. If, for example, people rejected the uh, fingerprint scan, they say, like, it's too complicated, like, my fingers are frozen, it's not working, it's just giving me bugs, let me into the app. So it can be considered a failure because it did not give us the optimization that we've been intending, and it actually gave us the decline in the satisfaction rate, so people got frustrated with this. So it can be considered a failure. So I'd say that before we actually um, label it onto white or black, it would be good to also have those two additional steps prior to any like finalization of the data usage at this point. Okay, that that is <laughs> that is really interesting. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I I, I get that. Uh, you need to you need to process the data and, and obviously you can't just throw data at the wall and see what sticks. I think what you've described is improving usability and performance optimization using uh, using the data. Um, I was wondering if there's anything else, any other um, issues that you can stumble uh, when you are looking at the data. Like for example, uh, in your in in in. The story that you told about uh, optimizing the performance and potentially improving user experience instead of needing to type in the password on a small phone or tablet keyboard, maybe it's just easier to use a fingerprint. How accurate that data was, or rather, let me rephrase that. Um, how sure are you that the data is actually telling you the truth? And what do you usually do? How do you make sure it tells you the truth? And what do you do if it doesn't? And I think you mentioned um, you mentioned something uh, in your story about uh, data being collected uh, by human by humans. Um, one of the things that I know from from my past experience is even if the data is not collected by humans, it's still um, it, you know in in the real world it's still being generated one way or another by humans. So. You can't always rely on that data being true because there's always, you know, room for improvement, room for error um, on the data side. So talk me through how you guys deal with this. Well, I would agree on to that part because human factor is always there. So people can be tired while aggregating information. They can be distracted so they can make a mistake or use the outdated coefficient just because they forgot to update them or something. So it's always understandable why data can be false because it was um, processed by the human after it was um, aggregated by the machine. So it's more than obvious. I do agree with that. Um, I would probably say the very obvious thing and um, not 
um, you know, like not as sophisticated as you as you were probably expecting me to say. But um, I would say that the first thing you need to do to figure out whether information is lying to you is just to use common sense, you know, because when you see the information, which obviously like confuses you or makes you question stuff additionally and more than it's supposed to, there might be something wrong with that. Um, good example of that also from my banking experience. So we were preparing the, like a little bit different, but still from there. So we were preparing the reports to present to um, high authorities once a month. And the person who was in charge of generating those reports was using uh, various coefficients of um, currency rates. In uh, Belarus, where I am from and where the bank was uh, working, the currency rates has two approaches of how, how to calculate them. Like statistically, um, uh, algebraically, let's call it this way. So various ways how to calculate them. They are approximately the same, but still different basically because the approach is different. So the key thing is that during preparing this report, the um, responsible person used the coefficient, which was calculated using the different approach than was used in all the previous months. Obviously, that created a difference, like the huge delta between the past month's values and the current month's values. So the regulator actually called and said, hey, guys, what are you doing there? Why the where's the money? Why everything changes so much? Um, so basically, the thing that could have been done in here is... Um, one more additional checkpoint link, which would figure out, you know, like this edge cases, the delta, like, okay, that differs way too much than it was um, in one month before, two months before, etc. cetera. Or um, where did you take the coefficient from? Uh, please show me that. And, oh, the value does not match. So uh, just setting some common business ru rules and um, restrictions for validation would help you to um, cut uh, to catch up the um, mistakes that were done by humans, which do not come into the common sense. So like the most obvious things, you can do that manually uh, with your own eyes. The ones which are not as obvious but still questionable can be caught through business rules. And um, how to else uh, figure out whether data is lying to you? Um, I'd say that you would always... Um, you probably would always have the way to compare that. So uh, if we're working with the statistics, with analysis and different levels, like if it's just the reporting or the dashboarding or the cloud analysis already, um, there's always the way um, to figure out the trend. And you would see that some things are changing not the way they're supposed to, not according to the models that you've been building previously. So you can just find them yourself through common sense. So I'd say that to... Um, find out the obviously false data, use common sense, aka human brain, uh, business rules, aka validation and restrictions, and three, trends and preceding business models. So like these three steps can actually give you the insights whether the data is wrong or not really. Wow, that that is that is interesting. I had and, and I've I've uh, talked about this product in uh, one of my first episodes. I've had um, a product that I was building that relied on a data collected um, 
from points of sale. So data itself was not generated manually, but the process was. And the the, the fun part, again, maybe I'm, I'm, I misspell or, or mispronounce uh, the steps that you've mentioned. Uh, the funny part was that uh, business rules would be okay. And the salesperson in the store that was using the point of sale was uh, actually following the business rules. Uh, but they would find ways to game the system. And we expected about uh, you know certain certain percentage of transactions uh, running through the system. Uh, and, and depending on the store, it could be from 1% or 2% to as much as 15 20% of transactions to be fraudulent, meaning they would adhere to business processes. They would adhere to business rules. Uh, otherwise, the system would not process the transaction at all. But uh, there would be something else about that transaction that is um, fraudulent, that is wrong. And if you just look at the transaction, it... It, like you said, the human uh, the, use the common sense and, and human eye. It would never you would never see that it's a it's a it's a wrong um, or fraudulent transaction. And you we actually developed um, a number of uh, separate rules, if you will, or additional algorithms that would uh, look through the data, match it with the business logic, and then match it against a number of additional rules. To see if the transaction was fraudulent. Uh, to give you a, a a removed example, not not from that industry, but something that everybody understands. So this is uh, one of the examples that was given to me. And what, what is what is a fraud at the point of sale system? For example, uh, you want to sell someone uh, a bottle of champagne in a bar. And this is not your bar, right? You just you just work there, so you don't really care. And so it's your friend. You can't charge them. And in 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 the club, in the bar is really expensive. The bottle that usually costs twenty dollars may cost three hundred. So he's your friend. You don't really want to charge him three hundred dollars, but you want to give him that bottle of champagne at a lower cost. So what you would do is you would uh, take a, a, cho- a chocolate or you know. Um, something less expensive you swipe it on the barcode scanner and you put a bottle on top of it so you don't you the camera that tracks you and there are cameras that track um the cash registers it would see that you're scanning uh, a bottle of champagne but the barcode that is being scanned would be actually be from a chocolate so you'd pay you know a couple of dollars for a bottle of champagne that you're supposed to be paying three hundred dollars this way transaction is correct uh you know Business business rules are are, are observed. Uh, you just scan the piece of chocolate, and you know you're paying whatever five ten dollars since it's a bar. Should I get uh, but, worried that um, you know this methodology <laughs> way too good? <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, because uh, I as as I said, I was building product. It was actually analyzing the data and highlighting the fraudulent cases. So it was um, uh, part, one of the uses for the product was to catch the fraud. Um, we've uh, uh, one of the pitches that we did was um, that if you, um, uh, I'm just trying to remember the exact phrase. Uh, so we'll we'll show you how much money you're leaving on the table uh, by analyzing just the fraud, and uh, 
it was it was something to the extent that uh, please, uh, we're not going to charge you any fixed fee. We're going to charge you a percentage of the recovered money uh, based on how much fraud we recovered, based on how much inefficiencies we recovered. And people usually uh, in a couple of months after you know two or three months, once they've seen that um, the amounts that we've recovered. And potential, uh, they asked, were asking to switch to a flat fee, no matter how big it is, because you know any reasonable flat fee would be still would still be less than uh, you know the fraud and the amount of money uh, that um, that we were recovering. It was really really huge. The the ways people were gaming the system, the ways, and and this was the telecom industry. So think uh, selling iPhones at a thousand dollar price mark. So if you can, you know, game the system and sell uh, two or three iPhones at thousand dollars and your commission and gain commissions from it, uh, it's it's a pretty significant amount of money. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, so I would say that this is the beauty of this kind of approach, that no matter how intelligent your system is and how perfectly verified your business rules are, it still can give you the wrong data. And no matter how qualified and experienced your people are, they still can make a mistake. So always combine those two, and they can give you at least a little bit better result than each by themselves. So that pretty much is what would work here, that business rules and the camera and uh, people's attention probably could have given you the way how to catch the person who's actually scanning the chocolate bar, but it did not. So there's a lot of gaps in there already. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it was funny that even, you know, the store owner would come in and say, or bar owner or uh, business owner would say, I know they're stealing from me. I just can't understand how they're doing it. And these are the people that have been, that have been in the industry for many, many years. So if anybody knows how to steal from their own uh, cash register, it would be them. Uh, but um, yeah, that was, uh, it was interesting how data can solve problems cheaper, as a matter of fact, than installing very expensive, um, very expensive security systems, closed circuit cameras and all that. Like, I really don't need the camera. I really don't need anything. I just need to see the data and I can tell you the outliers and uh, I can tell you that this transaction has something, something's off or, you know, the number of transactions does not match the number of items in your inventory, which usually different things. Um, in many systems for whatever reason. All right, the, this this is interesting. This is really great. Thank you. Uh, so, what? Uh, how else uh, in the real world? Again, uh, how else can we use the data? Uh, assuming we can figure out, we can clean it up and figure out uh, that the data is correct. Uh, what else can can we do? Um, can we use the data for? What else can we do with the data? Uh, can we? I don't know. Use it to plan the products. Can we? Uh, I don't know. Create new products based solely on data. I mean, I would love to. I would love <laughs> to have certain things. Right, look at the data and say, "Hey, you know what? This feels like we need to build a product." And that something similar did happen. Not exactly that, and that's what I'm saying. I would love. I would love for this specific thing to happen. Um, if if I may, that reminds me on an off topic of how I met your mother. Said, "Come, it was like we we told we should totally open a bar. Yeah, we should open a bar. So it's here. We have the data. We should totally start up a new product. We should do that." Um, <laughs> sorry, off topic. 
that's good. Um, that's, that, that's very good. That's a good reference. Thank you. Uh, so the key thing in here, um, probably the not obvious thing, like when we have the data and we have the urge to make the earth a better place, you know, like to create a better economy and this kind of stuff, um, that is like the obvious way we can go. But I'd like to give it an insight on the not so much of an obvious way how we can actually use the data when we have it, it's correct, and we want to use it somehow. Um, I would say that one of the ways we can um, use data is to start developing the data culture among employees. Uh, what do I mean by that? It's not like data-driven culture, as you've probably heard the term, but like the data itself culture is that um, the employees should learn how to kind of behave with the data and um, treat it the right way. So in, I'm pretty sure in a lot of your projects, you as well saw um, how people are just dumping the information onto some weird uh, spreadsheets, do not save them properly, do not um, update them once it should be updated. So it turns into garbage data pretty much. Um, so the way that we actually were able to figure out the data out of this dump and uh, see the value in it can be one of the stimulating ways for the employees to actually start treating data right. So let's say you come to your employees and say that, okay, guys, so uh, we had to analyze a lot of information through like these means and these means and whatsoever. Uh, and we were able to figure out that, um, let's say the um, the number of the purchases and the quantity of the box in the storage is actually uh, got basically from this application, not from the others. And uh, in the future reporting, we're going to use information used only from this application as our main source. So that would actually give people the understanding, okay, so if the main source of information is now this application, there's no need to support, let's say, this other folder of data because it's going to be obsolete, not used, not even for historical purposes, it's just going to be useless and uh, overwhelming. So they would um, create a habit of following the data and the trend in the data in the organization and the company, which is actually given the profit. It would give them um, the initial, you know, like discipline sort of thing. They would be able to figure out like what data to store and which one is not. Um, and uh, another way is to like, when they're going to be understanding like what data is used, um, that would make uh, them more aware of uh, probably the mistakes and um, not, um, how to say that properly, not uh, accurate usage and storage of the data. So they would say, like in the particular example that I've been giving earlier, so the person uh, was preparing the reports once a month. So it's not as often and um, as urgent as you would think, but in this particular way, it is extremely important. So you have to be like super concentrated, super fo focused and um, uh, very, very much into the stuff that you're doing. So it will be um, probably easier and um, more um, understandable for the uh, employees how to uh, separate and delegate different tasks of a very complicated um, uh, reporting or a dashboard or whatever to 
different employees so the so that the cross check would give them the most um, correct information and each of the employee would develop their own responsibility for the piece of information they're preparing so as one of the non-obvious ways of using the information gathered is sort of giving your employees the inner data discipline and data culture in treating numbers and um, various information correctly and uh, the way it can bring value to the company through themselves already, not after some smart machine or some smart algorithm is going to transport it some way and give us information. So like you are responsible for the data you're given, so be nice to it. <laughs> Funny, <laughs> be nice to it. I like that. I, I, I like the term that he used: the um, data culture. I've uh, more than once I've seen uh, people not really eager to collect to help companies collect the data because there's this stigma of hey, this data will be used against me, and and they're not wrong. That's uh, let me just say that uh, there's definitely a way how the company can use this data to, I don't want to say abuse, but take unfair advantage of, of the workers. And uh, one of the examples that come to mind, and if you, if you feel you can uh, comment on that, uh, was the recent um, discovery, I think would be the proper term, that um, the algorithm was optimizing the routes of Amazon delivery and Amazon warehouse workers. But what was missing from that algorithm was the account that these are not robots. These are real people. They need to, you know, sometimes have a sanitation break. Oh, that sounds they awful. Need to just, that that yeah, already they, sounds they need very to catch. sad. And it was, and it was, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, complaints. There was a lot of uh, uh, materials published online all over the place uh, in uh, in regards to Amazon not taking into account the, actually not Amazon, but the algorithms that they were employing, not taking into advantage the fact that these are real human beings. So for example, if you were supposed to work an eight hour shift, it would plan literally all eight hours down to minutes and seconds, make sure you're in the most efficient. There was no uh, account for you know, bathroom breaks, no account for just stopping and catching a break, stopping and, and taking a breath. Same thing if you're a delivery, uh, you're driving a Amazon truck to deliver goods to uh, individual customers or from warehouse to whomever ordered it. You They would optimize the route without accounting for traffic and it's fine in rural areas but as you go into larger cities like uh, los angeles san francisco new york boston chicago the large conglomerates it becomes a really big problem and amazon did not account for that or whomever built the algorithm did not account for that and as much as we love you know being efficient as much as we love making sure that everything is uh, working as smoothly as possible there was no way for people to meet the quotas or there was no way for people in those large cities to meet the expectations set up by the algorithm yeah right so mm-hmm. in 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 your in your term data culture i i, I love it i i i'm making a note i'm probably going to use it um at some uh, some point in my work uh thank you for that trademark. i want to make sure that leave the if- trademark to me please <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, 
so what I wanted to say was data culture is is a two way street. Yes, uh, we want to encourage uh, workers, employees. <laughs> to save the data, collect the data, preserve the data in the right way, but we also want to make sure that it's being used responsibly. Correct. That's yeah. kind of mm-hmm. where I was getting at. By the way, uh, since you're an expert, uh, I, I, have, I have a rookie question, okay, <laughs> a newbie shoot. question. Um, is there um, reasonable, can I reasonably expect the algorithm to learn and I'm, I'm deliberately using uh, artificial intelligence slash machine learning terminology because I don't want I don't want to say you know well, is there a statistical approach is there an analytics approach I I want to use as generic as <laughs> you know as internet terms as possible okay. is there a way for the algorithms uh, or whoever is working on them to learn from real humans so that that they their in the, their inefficiencies are built in you can't optimize to remove those inefficiencies they'll be there just because we're you know living breathing organisms and not not machines is there a way to account for that uh, on, on the algorithm or on the data level not you know when i'm planning things i kind of feel that you're expecting a yes or no question from me <laughs> but um, um no no actually actually no please don't please elaborate as as much as uh, possible given you know given what we know now <laughs> So, if I may, I'm like a fan of weird references. I'm going to give another one. Um, I've recently been um, reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, by uh, Douglas Adams. And you're probably familiar with the concept of the deep thought computer, like the smartest computer in the world ever created in all the universes. So, uh, humans gave the computer the task to figure out the answer, the ultimate answer to uh, the life, the universe, and everything. And the computer was processing this information uh, through all the statistics, through all the um, uh, assumptions, risks, complications. It's been processing for 7 million years. Uh, and then the answer was 42. So I would like answering your particular question with this reference, I would say that the machine is able to, like if we're using the buzzword, is able to learn as much uh, nuances as possible and um, use as many details and assumptions that take risks into considerations to the most uh, possible way to participate in uh, preparing predictions or forecasts or some analysis. Uh, but I still believe that the decision maker is anyway the human aside from all the science fiction and um all the fantasy world stories where the intelligence is too intelligent uh, to overcome the humankind i strongly believe that um the final word is upon the human and as advanced as the technology in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and all the processing of the um, uh, advanced analysis and deep BI in specifics uh, is getting with time that is still going to be more like uh, this and that and that. So what next? So the person is going to be the decision maker. I'd say that the machine is able to learn um, a lot and to act and answer a lot of very complicated questions, but it would not be um, completely correct to leave the machine decide. So the decision making is still left to the human brain and to the 
subject matter experts who are humans and people and who are actually like uh, people with the um, business insights, uh, deeper understanding, empathy, if you may. So all of the emotions and emotional intelligence which our machines are uh, lacking and hopefully will keep lacking. Thank you for the reference, by the way. I absolutely love uh, the books and uh, uh, both, I think both uh, movies. Well, one of, one is a BBC production, one is uh, the actual movie. Um, so funny that you said that we'll leave decision-making to humans because as of last year, if I'm not mistaken, as of the last year, um, and I'm, 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 I'm just going to generalize it because I don't remember the specifics, so don't quote me specifically on that. Um, there was an experiment where uh, scientists built AI predicting or analyzing the symptoms and predicting the diagnosis in uh, patients uh, in a very specific niche uh, of the medicine. Uh, I, I can't remember for the life of me, uh, and I don't have time to look it up right now, uh, the specific niche, but it was one of the general things like um, a seasonal flu or, or allergies or something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a very common uh, case. So there's a lot of data. They did the analysis. They've uh, they've ran, they created the algorithm. They've uh, built uh, the AI around it, and uh, to their surprise, AI predicted the correct diagnosis better than human doctors. It was not marginally better. It was actually significantly better so there's it was not like a, a marginal error it was hey if this was the real deal we should use computers rather than doctors because computers are distinctly better you know that kind of and, reminds me the way that um kind of the same project project i heard about um when they were um given the algorithm algorithms a lot of um, x-ray files to analyze and to figure out whether it's a tumor or some kind of oncology coming up in the human and uh, that gave actually the exact same result so the doctors were missing out information and uh, making less correct uh, diagnosis than the, rather than the machine did so that sounds kind of the same to the situation that you gave yeah, that sounds similar indeed. So that that that's my point. And and we're let's be reasonable. We are very early in stages of building algorithms and building machine learning and artificial intelligence capabilities. Uh because we're not as as humanity, we're not cultured, we're not collecting enough data. We only now started to realize all the benefits of collecting the data. So uh we're probably gonna build additional you know we're, we're going to need additional several years to build up the enough data for some serious uh, algorithm usage uh, in that sense we're probably going to see even more even larger gap between what the doctors can do and since we're using this uh, this case between what the doctors can do and what the uh, computers can do and in that sense uh, it feels like at some point we're just going to give up it's really easy, the way I see it, it's really easy to give up, to say, hey, um, we don't need the doctor to make the diagnosis. We just need the doctor to validate the diagnosis. So it makes to basically confirm that the computer was correct. Um, and that's it. We're basically, as, as much as I, 
<laughs> to quote another cultural reference, I, um, I for one, uh, pra- praise uh, the coming of our future robot overlords. I think that's the quote. <laughs> uh, yeah, so positive as much thinking. as I want... <laughs> positive thinking. Yes, and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I, For once, I like to think that computers will help us, will uh, definitely lift some of the load off our shoulders in terms of processing, analyzing data and uh, giving us some kind of a some kind of an outcomes, uh, some kind of um, food for thought. Uh, at the same time, I feel, it feels like it's too easy to say, hey, computer knows better. Let's let it decide what to do. Well, you know, that kind of already happened to us. Remember when the first computers were so um, advanced in all the calculations and how fast they were doing um, some mathematical actions? So at some point, humans just had to admit that, okay, we cannot do math as quickly and as awesomely as computers do. Well, it's just it. Okay. And um, do you see people actually start stopped um, making two plus two? No, people are still using that. They just admit that, okay, that computers can be better in this case. So I would... I think that it can be the same way uh, with a further development of um, intelligence of computers. So isn't the example, as you said, okay, the computers are given the better and the more accurate um, diagnosis to the patients and to complicated cases. Okay. Um, So it's just the way we can learn from them. So we can just analyze the information that they've given us and uh, try to find out, like, what did we miss out? Um, How can we can become a more advanced specialist an expert ourselves and just keep treating people and just becoming a better version of ourselves. It's more of the human way how to deal with that. So the computers just can get more advanced in the actions that are performing and the humans can just become better in all the other aspects which are closed for um, machines and for algorithms. So do not give up on humankind so easily. We can still use computers and even if they're smarter than us, we can still use them and grow more from them and get more information from them and become better versions of ourselves. Positive vibe. Okay, so your your outlook is is strongly positive. Your <laughs> outlook is strongly uh, optimistic. We we we're gonna get better at this. Well, uh, you know, with them, as with much computer. as I love Terminator. Honestly, like every part of it, as much as I love it, I still think that humankind um, is having something that machines are never going to have. And it might be a little bit, you know, like philosophical question and which is not a part of this particular discussion. But um, in the particular case that you've given, I think that even though machines are getting smarter than humans in some of the ways, attention in some of the ways, not in all of the ways, um, it's not the end of humankind era and it's not the limit of uh, humankind um, capabilities. Okay, (laughs) that's um, that that's really optimistic. Thank you, (laughs) I appreciate that. All right, Um, so we're uh, getting closer to the time, and I have to ask those two questions that I promised you before we started the recording that I'm going to ask. So, one is, how does it feel, or what do you think, or what is your opinion on working uh, from home? more or less permanently. And as a data expert, uh, I want to throw in another uh, curveball asking, uh, how do you think 
since it, it it provides more data to be collected, like how long you've been online, how long have you been uh, coding, how long you've been you know sitting in front of the computer, would that affect our understanding of uh, workplace as the whole? Would that be, would there be any kind of consequences from that on on the data, so the data collection and analysis side? Okay, so answering the first part of the question about remote uh, remote working for most of the time, um, I'd say that. Thanks to, again, the growing intelligence of computers and the way they're perceiving the information that we're given, like this specific case, like we're exchanging our voices through the ocean, uh, over across the ocean, and um, we're still doing that, and all the data is going clear and okay. So I'd say that um, remote work in 21st century is becoming less of a problem um, in its core uh, than the human work itself. What do I mean by that is that um, we do have all the means to do that, like uh, internet, um, notebooks, remote workplaces, et cetera, et cetera, but it's more up to humans to adjust themselves, like their natures upon this particular environment. So for them to be more data-driven, to be more, you know, like, Simple example, more attached to the schedule. So let's say this particular hours you have to be online with your team having meetings no matter what happens. And if your cat wants to have some extra food, you just have to be online and um, get more uh, into the technology you're doing. More data that you're getting, like both uh, texting, codes, um, different uh uh, comments in the GitHub, like different pushes and rolls and stuff and stuff and stuff. It's more of the uh, humankind um, way to adjust to this way. Um, from my perspective, as a one standalone person, I'd say that it's a, in the technical and in data-driven perspective, it's not complicated for me because I'm used to working with uh, remote teams um, and just being uh, very... Um, you know, like responsible onto the way I'm doing, but from the human part of myself and from the emotional intelligence, it feels kind of lonely because you're facing the machines only, not the real humans. You do not hear them laugh. You do not see the faces. So it's a little bit complicated into the emotional part. Um, and, um, as the data specialist, um, and can you please remind me what was the core of the question? Like what data, um, how the data that we yeah, get from remote? Data, okay. Um, so if, if with the data we're collecting from the remote, uh, from people working remotely, how would that affect us mm -hmm. in the long run? Would we collect something useful? Would we collect something dangerous to us? Those types of things. <laughs> Um, okay. Um, again, tricky thing. I'd say that if you're using like this monitor things, like a lot of the um, programming stocks are using, like they're keeping the movement on your uh, on your computer that you're actually like moving and typing something in, that would make the relationship between uh, employer and the employees more mechanic and uh, more technic. So it's might ruin the relationship and like the core of the work, um, not ruin, but just like bring some damage onto it in the long run because uh, both employers are not going to be trusting enough. Like, what are you doing there? Like, why your mouse, mouse is not moving? I see that you're not coding there. And the people are not going to be trusting enough that, okay, I wanted to go drink some water, but I have to be here writing the code. Otherwise, otherwise the data would be collected wrongly and I wouldn't be paid properly. So it might bring some distancing and, you know, like mistrust in between people in some ways. 
But um, among the positive consequences, I would say that it would just show, um, and funny thing, um, unexpectedly, more managerial um, questions and issues. Like you can get the data um, in numbers like analysis and statistics about how your team actually was performing. And you would see that, okay, I'm actually having the specialist who is not... um, okay with the tasks I'm given, or I should uh, delegate one task to two people instead of one as I do have it now. So probably the data that we're going to have from working remotely might give us insights onto how to optimize our managerial part of the work. So that's from my perspective, as I think. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, now, now that you mentioned that uh, the, the managerial part and the uh, mistrust, as, as a person who used to be a developer in the previous lives, I actually think it would create way more mistrust. Um, that, I mean, my, my, my overall outlook is that uh, it's going to do more harm than good because uh, and, and that's uh, one of the things I read online, um, there's a there's a couple of uh, systems out there um, that track freelancers' work, and uh, what happens is they take several pictures randomly in you know in a specific um, a specific unit of time. Let's say five minutes, ten minutes. It takes several pictures and counts the number of keystrokes. Then um, takes screenshots. So not only it takes the pictures through the camera to see if you're in front of the screen, also it takes screenshots of what what you're working on. Uh, looks at the uh, applications that are open currently on the computer and so on and so on. Wow, human rights uh, violation alert. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, apparently, you know, you have to consent to that before it starts. So you can't, you can't, you can't just start doing it randomly. And if you take on the project, then uh, you consent to this information being uh, being taken from you. And I think Upwork is one of them. Uh, there are a couple of others, um, and I know that because we've uh, I've used Upwork in the previous. We hired people off the Upwork in the previous job uh, that I had. Yeah, well, I heard and, of Upwork uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that uh, can happen here is that, uh, you know, it's it it's almost like spying on the person. And exactly. even if you're you yeah. have the best intentions, even if you're like, OK, I, I, I really like this project. I want to work on it. And I think, you know, judging by the result, it's fair. Uh, but if if this is what's happening and the system automatically says, oh, uh, you did. I didn't get enough screenshots of you working in this 10 minute period. So you're not going to be paid for that for that 10 minute period if you're being paid by the hour. So what happens with people actually end up working uh, way over to make up for those missed 10 minute periods when they were not accounted for? So instead of an eight-hour workday, uh, people ended up working 10, 12 hours to make up for those little bits and pieces that were missing. And uh, I, again, as a, as a former developer, as a person I used to do that, I, I think it's a pretty dangerous path to go on. I think I'd rather keep track of a result rather right. than the process itself. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, ultimately, I I, I keep saying this um, in, in multiple situations. People don't buy a drill. They buy holes in the wall. So if you deliver the result, I don't really care if you worked in 10-minute increments or if you just, you know, sprint through the whole thing in four hours and then spent another four hours uh, trying to relax and bring your mind back. Yeah, right. So there's, there's, there's that... Uh, 
idea that you know it, it may create additional mistrust and hostility. And a last question that I have uh, for today for this episode is if you have any questions for me. And again, let's keep it down to uh, me being able to answer the question in, in <laughs> okay. a reasonable amount of time. Okay, don't worry. I'm not going to challenge you with anything like too um, artificial intelligently because I don't know that either. Um, so the key thing, I actually like generated this question throughout our discussion. So if you are like your, um, as I see that most of your positions are more of the uh, product manager side. So you are more from the business perspective, from the um, overall situation tendencies and uh, like this part um, of the project the pictures, yeah the yes. bigger thank you yeah bigger picture of the project exactly so how do you think um, is there might be maybe to some extent um, in the future the threat to you to what you do to what you're analyzing from the um, intelligence and from the business intelligence from the data-driven approaches and from the algorithms that are as we figured out advancing way too quickly well <laughs> that's a great question thank you i uh, i uh what's the right way to, way to say it i didn't think of this but now that you've asked this i think it's a beautiful question thank you um no, I don't think there's a threat. I think uh, we are actually under less threat uh, from AI than musicians um, are. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen cases when computers write music that is more pleasant to the uh, to the ear than um, humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I've, I've kind, I, I kind of, I was subscribed at some point to a source of computer generated music. It just was not generated. Uh, that particular person was not generating it in the style that I liked at that time. So I, I lost that uh, thread. I should probably go find it. Uh, but um, since computers write, you know, compose music, uh, they write lyrics, they uh, write, create paintings, uh, it's natural that they will one day start doing product management work. And um, my rationale is product management is as much art as it is science and computers can probably do both at some point but in the same way uh, they're probably going to be uh, more supporting rather than replacing role i think we're going to have a lot more insight into why people do things and how people do things which is how we create and how we enhance our products and the whole data-driven approach to pro building a product, um, and that, if you remember, I alluded to that. Is there, is there a way to look at the data and say, hey, this looks like a new product to me? <laughs> uh, definitely. I definitely want that to happen uh, because uh, this is one of those cases when uh, we can uh, we can create products that create products. Kind of like we've, uh, we've had... Um, plants that manufacture tools and uh, the, that those tools were used to build other tools. And then uh, we were building end product. So it's the same way how you can, you had a uh, robotic um, uh, or mechanized and then robotic uh, tools so that you just tell the tool what you want or like a 3D printer at the end of the day. So think about it uh, in this way, instead of giving the 3D printer a specific dimensions or specific things, uh, specific instructions how to print a certain item. You just tell them, hey, I need something to open this can. And then artificial intelligence would analyze it. Hey, this is a, you know, 
aluminum cans. So you probably need a knife. So you probably need a knife with certain level of, of um, uh, sharpness and, you know, being sturdy and uh, from specific type of metal so you can cut the aluminum. And it would make all these decisions by itself and then print the 3D print that, that knife. So that would be... Um, Oh, by the way, there's a great literature reference, if you know it. Uh, I think it's Robert Shackley. Uh, the product was called Confabulator. So you, you would tell it what you want and it would 3D print it or, or create it from oh, something. Oh, cool. I've never but, heard of uh, that. Yeah, it's um, um, Look It Up by... Um, I think Robert Shackley had a series of stories. This is one of the short stories. And one of the problems that Confab Confabulator had was uh, it had it had a consciousness, so it never made anything twice. Mm -hmm. It never made any any of the thing twice. So if you ever asked it to build something from steel, it would never make anything made from steel ever again. And that was kind of, this is kind of like a premise of the story. That's why how people got into the trouble. Um, so okay. if if you want, read it up. And 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 that. You know that that's kind of a that's kind of a way I see this happening. So uh, we're definitely gonna get there eventually. Uh, I'll probably retire by then. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I still want to see this because it makes your life a lot easier. You can stop thinking about little details, and you actually can start thinking about bigger pictures. And your pictures just gonna get bigger because you, now you can instead of thinking, uh, "Oh, hey, we're gonna put you know part A." insert part A into detail B or into item B, you can start thinking, okay, so I want, I want a bicycle, right? I, you know, it has to be either this tall or this thing. So you can, instead of writing requirements for every individual piece, every individual tiny little thing that comprises your product, you can start writing uh, requirements for the whole product. And then uh, whatever that is, artificial intelligence will figure out how to build that product. So that would be really cool. Yeah, well, honestly, I I wasn't expecting such an awesome answer. So thank you very very much. That's actually very cool to hear, like how you see the, um, you know, like artificial intelligence and like the data driven future from from your like business perspective. That's really very awesome. Thank you. Uh, by all means, yeah, I I read a lot of science fiction. I I still do. So <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of crazy ideas. Well, that's not kind of what I was implying, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this has been great. Thank you so much, Ksenia. I appreciate your being on this episode of the Real World Product Management. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And I'm, I'm hoping we'll uh, have you again. I think you have a lot more conti to contribute to uh, our knowledge and understanding of advanced BI and machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Same here. So thank you for today. been listening to the real world product management and i've been your host vlad grubman until the next time